Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, another episode of Arash's World. Today, we have not only one, but two special guests. And uh, we have Dr. Ed Tronick, as well as Dr. Claudia Gold. Welcome to Arash's World. Thank, Thank you. you. Wonderful. So if you guys could um, present yourself briefly, tell, uh, tell us uh, what you do. Um, tell us things that um, you would not normally say, uh, what uh, interests you as well. And then we will dive into talking about your amazing book that you have written. But just for inter introduction, let's have Dr. Etronic, if you can get started, please. How would you describe yourself briefly? I, I would describe myself as a, a wannabe, really good tennis player. I try to play as much as possible. Um, following this meeting, I'll be having uh, a lesson. It'll be the same lesson I've taken at least 100 times trying to correct exactly the same discord and errors that, I, that I've always had. Um, and in other parts of my life, I'm a developmental neuroscientist and also a clinical psychologist. And I've done work on primarily on social emotional development in infants, um, both their behavior and their brain development. And clinically, I've worked primarily with... Uh, really young families uh, with children under three or four years of age. And both Claudia and I are part of the Infant Parent Mental Health Fellowship Program, um, which trains uh, multidisciplinary professionals and clinicians in uh, working with uh, young families. Wonderful. Thanks so much. I, I also have a passion for tennis, but not, not very good at it <laughs> myself. Right. Playing a lot does not necessarily make one good. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Claudia Gold. Well, uh, something relevant to my life these days is that I'm a dog lover. And my husband and I have two wonderful dogs, one of whom has some early developmental trauma and the other who we got is a puppy. And we are having so much joy co-parenting them, uh, both uh, now home a lot of the time, very different experience from when our kids were young 20 something years ago. <laughs> so we're really enjoying that, doing that together. And they are such a delight. Um, so I am a pediatrician and I specialize in early childhood mental health. Um, I did fairly traditional training and then I got training in uh, developmental and behavioral pediatrics, but it wasn't until I discovered first through psychoanalysis and then studying psychoanalysis and then through discovering the world of infant parent mental health in uh, Ed's program that he mentioned, uh, that I really learned how to help families. Um, and I often was frustrated with the medical model and, and as were the families that were coming to me. And when I learned these new ideas, many of which are in our book that we wrote together, um, I began to see really uh, dramatic shifts in families and uh, a lot of really powerful healing going on. So now I practice, have a very specialized practice just with families with children uh, under four. Uh, and I also write, and I'm actually working on a new book right now. Mm -hmm. And you also have a blog, is that correct? Yes, yeah, cool. I do have a blog. Yeah. I I write a name, really. 
Yeah, psychoanalysis is amazing, and that has changed many things for me over the past years, and we can, <laughs> we can talk about that too. So thanks for your introductions, and the book is The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience, and Trust. Now, the word here, discord, that is something that we are experiencing constantly, it seems, over the past years as well, and polarized visions and, and all that. So um, the, the idea is interesting to, uh, to say that discord is actually good for us, but when we just briefly look at the world, we realize it is causing a lot of rifts, a lot of pain and suffering. So just briefly, how would you um, say that discord, this situation we're finding ourselves in can be beneficial? The this discord can be beneficial in a, in a particular or in, in many different ways. Um, and primarily it's, um, it makes possible change. It makes possible creating something new. If everything is static and unchanging, then um, it remains that way. It remains static, it remains unchanging. Uh, when relationships um, are, for example, which never happens, um, really organized in a particular way, which is really rigid. Uh, there's, there may not be any discord in the relationship, but nonetheless, there also isn't the possibility of something new uh, coming up. And what we've seen, um, what I've seen particularly in my studies of infants with interacting with their parents is that um, there's a, a fair amount of discord in even the best of relationships. But what it does with infants and parents um, uh, is to allow them to resolve it, to repair it in a new kind of way, and out of that repair, create something new. Uh, and it's also, I think, um, just to add on to that, the, the way um, adult relationships operate, adult relationships which are rigid and static, don't change. Uh, ones that have discord, disagreement, things to resolve, um, allow for new things to occur. Mm -hmm. Discord is kind of, uh, and conflict is the spice of life. I mean, it shows that we are growing and learning. And as you're saying, we, we, don't, we don't wanna be stuck in the same uh, static uh, relationship that we have. Um, now, what about, um, um, Dr. Claudia Gold, what about the uh, Winnicott's uh, conception of the good enough mother? How would that, um, how would you see that and how would that fit in to our discussion here and uh, your book, perhaps? Well, it is a very profound concept that Winnicott described as growing out of his own experience, both um, uh, treating parents and babies in real time and uh, as a psychoanalyst where his uh, patients would kind of regress to dependence. So he would have a sense of parent-infant relationships uh, with an adult who actually speaks. Um, so he has a lot of wisdom and there is a lot of parallel between uh, Ed's research and this concept of the good enough mother as Winnicott described it. So it's much more than just saying it's okay to make mistakes, which is sometimes how people describe it. It's really the, the idea is that our core sense of self uh, emerges through the mismatches or mismistakes or failures. Winnicott used that word failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, that our caregivers make. I mean, they they are a different person, 
a, a parent is a different person from their child. And it's the inevitable times where they don't quite get each other that uh, that's the boundaries that give you that solid sense of I am me develop. So really for parents, and then it really translates into all our relationships, um, those moments where we don't quite get each other and then we hang in there together and then we come to a moment of understanding are really how we grow in relationship and also as our core sense of self. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite interesting too, because the the person, the caretaker and caregiver would uh, would adjust to the children and the children's development. So and their age as well. So I've I've, I've um, um, paying a lot of attention to to the baby, to the infant, and then slowly kind of um, taking it away and stepping back a little bit. So uh, in 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 concordance with uh, with the age, and I, I think what Winnicott was also saying is at, in their at infancy stage we need to attend to their needs pretty much immediately so we don't have a rift. And that is something that I'm concerned about, about parenting is that um, maybe um, we try to instill these ideas of uh, independence too early. I've uh, seen a program that in Japan, they, um, it's a, a toddler, a three-year-old is sent out to make errands uh, on his own. And so, and I find that could be traumatic for uh, a child who's not ready uh, emotionally and mentally to, to deal with, with that. So um, what I'm talking about here, the push for independence that comes a bit early and the child might not be ready to assimilate it in a, in a productive way. Do you agree or disagree with that? Um, oh, may I just sure, yeah, yeah. first? I mean, I mean, I think it's a cultural phenomenon. I think that's why it's really important that you mentioned that it's Japan because this is a different phenomenon in different cultures. Um, and uh, so different cultures value independence in different ways. Um, but I do think you have to look at it developmentally. So certainly in the early weeks of life, a baby does require, because of their a human, any human is completely helpless and requires that very close, what, what Lunakai called primary maternal preoccupation, but then developmentally, um, they, uh, as they become more and more competent, they uh, can have more and more of those uh, failures but but independence is a construct that occurs within culture so i would leave it at that yeah i think it it's really a very culturally culturally bound phenomenon one of um my my most wonderful friends and uh, mentor was uh Barry Brazelton pediatrician and um he grew up in uh, Waco although i refer to it as Waco Texas um and uh, in his book on children um, called The uh, Infants and Mothers, which he's changed the title, the title was changed as times changed as well. And infants is my, he talks about a struggle at four months of age between the willfulness of the child and the willfulness of the parent. Now that, that view, um, is a cultural view. It's a view laden with values. At the same time, I think we have to be very careful of, of the other side of it is that we can act or we can think that we know exactly what the biology is of child rearing. And therefore there's one way to do child rearing, the biological 
kind of way. And what I know from my cross-cultural work, and I've worked in several places, several countries in Africa and South America, as well as India, is that the variation of the way parents engage in good enough parenting is enormous. And the goal in each case is not only to protect and have the child uh, be healthy and have well-being, but to acculturate the child from the very beginning to the culture that they're going to find themselves in. A, a child who has good well-being, a, a, a child that we really value, is a child who, in fact, does go along with the cultural values. It, it's you know what we talk about, like behave properly, um, and it begins begins in infancy. Um, and uh, working with infants and parents in different cultures has made it made it really obvious to me how um, how cultures are present at the very moment of birth, and actually they're probably present before birth. Yeah, starting with language. I mean, and, uh, and that already creates uh, different perceptions, uh, the language that they're using. And um, I, I went to a lecture, I had the um, pleasure to go to a lecture by Dr. Richard Aslan. And uh, he was the one who actually introduced me to the still face experiments and, uh, and, and showed uh, clips of it, which we're going to get to in a moment. But what was interesting, and I talked to him afterwards, what he said in terms of language learning, it's often driven by anxiety of children. Children are anxious because they are looking for a certain kind of like connection and understanding of the world, trying to make meaning out of what's happening. And that's the drive. So when, and the still face experiment, uh, which was, I found remarkable as well as shocking in a way, uh, because where, where the mother is, is, is not responding to the child's needs. And we're talking about an infant, I think a year old, and, and the child is distressed. And so that distress just, just drives me crazy. At the same time, I fully understand what the, the purpose is of to show that importance that the mother needs to be, or the, again, the, the caregiver needs to be present at all times to the needs of the children. And when you don't do that, that causes uh, a, a rift. But at the same time, if there is repair, as you mentioned in the video too, that can fix it. But my issue here is, um, we don't want to create discord or trauma. There is enough in the world and there is no I, perfect har harmony. So um, yeah, what do, you, what do you have to say? I, I, think it, I, I think you're making an uh, implicit assumption um, that in fact, most of the parents, mo most people do make, which is this idea that the we should minimize that, that the goal is to keep the child in as calm and quiet and as well organized a state as possible. And that stress is um, really problematic for the child. And, it, and the phenomenon is that without stress, there isn't development. And, and more importantly, if you think about cultures, um, I worked with a wonderful anthropologist, uh, Robert Levine, who did uh, really amazing work on early childhood, some of the very first studies. And one of the things he pointed out is that if something is really important to a culture, highly valued, that it will engage in rather stressful forms of 
behavior or caretaking in order to get, in this case, the child to adjust. So for example, um, you mentioned Japan. In Japan, um, infants as newborn, infants through adulthood in traditional Japan always sleep with someone. They first sleep with their mother, then they sleep with their siblings, then they sleep with their grandparents, then they sleep with their spouse. Um, so traditionally, they, they never slept alone. But in Japan, um, mothers will wake, wake up a sleeping baby. Now, if you start waking up a sleeping baby in this country, in the US, you're likely to get reported to Department of Children's Services because you're disrupting. But in Japan, the cultural belief is that infants are independent beings who have to be incorporated into the family. And the parent's behavior, which disrupts the child, which disrupts the child's sleep, conveys to the child the message that they're part of a family. They're not independent of their family. That in fact, the family really knows best for them. Now we may not agree with that. We don't typically agree with that. But think about what we do with three and four and five week olds, um, which is we leave them to cry in cribs to put themselves to sleep. Not every that. <laughs> what? I said, don't do that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe four You may not want, we, you may have, this may not be what you want to do. But the phenomenon is, is the message to the child is that you have to self-regulate, that you have to take care of yourself. And that independence that you referred to is something we begin to carry out early on, very early on in development in terms of the, the kinds of caretaking that we engage in. I, I agree with mild stress. And so again, I think the Goldilocks effect would, would work here. It's like not too much, not too overwhelming. And again, having the, the baby crying the crib on their own and not attending to the needs is to me extreme stress, especially from the perception of, of the fragile uh, mind of, uh, of, a, of a child. I would see that in, in that way. So I think it's like that we, and studies have proven, have proven that mild stress increases here performance and engagement. And uh, we need stress, of course. We do need it to, to get out of bed, to do stuff, to, to, to do well in school, um, but it should be moderated according to the situation and should not be overwhelming, which is, again, my view, because that could create trauma. And trauma is something, especially in, in childhood, um, uh, where you would see things different. Your brain has not fully developed yet. You can't rationalize in the same way we can as adults. Uh, can be a long lasting. And that's something I've been fascinated about how trauma influences uh, us in our adult lives and in our relationships as well, coming from childhood, trauma from childhood. And so, yeah, Dr. Uh, Claudia Gold, can you maybe uh, comment on that or uh, what, what do you have to say? Well, there's a lot of uh, complexity to your question. Um, so what exactly is trauma? Um, and you can, I think, find the answer to that if we go a little deeper into the still face experiment. Mm -hmm. um, because what you see in the typical still face experiment is that the baby recovers 
immediately from this. So this kind of thing where the mother is, is not there is so typical of their experience. And that um, is what makes them have that robust reaction. You know, the, the baby is so sh kind of sure of themselves. Um, but if you, in, in, if you look at babies with uh, depressed mothers, you already see very early in life that when a mother was not able to give that kind of moment to moment repair, that the baby has already developed a way of being in the world that has a more hopeless quality to it. Um, so I think that gives a, a little bit better texture to the word trauma, which is really like something out there happens to you. I think if you think of it relationally, uh, what happens in relationships that makes our core sense of self feel uh, vulnerable to anxiety and hopelessness, that we then carry that kind of way of being into relationships with other people uh, so it per perpetuates the pattern going forward. So I think that really gives a, a better flavor of what you're talking about than the, the word trauma, which can mean a million different things. And I think uh, families are generally, and when you talk about, uh, or they mentioned perfect harmony and, uh, and so on, I don't think that exists. And even the idea, the concept of perfectionism, where you try to be perfect, uh, either as, as a parent or in you know, your relationship, I think that is, that is wrong, that is misguided. And that creates a lot of suffering in itself, that, that drive for perfection. And I think one of the things might be because when, when as children, and again, mostly here, my experience, as children, we don't have the emotional security that uh, uh, when we're growing up. And so we try to make up for that. Like Alfred Adler would talk about the inferiority uh, complex of like trying to overcome because we feel um, not at ease with ourselves. We feel uncertain and we try to do more to make ourselves feel worthy. And so that could be and uh, a drive for perfectionism. And that's why I like Winnicott's good enough because that is something we should be striving for, not perfection, but the best we can do. And that idea of perfectionism, I think causes more harm and does more damage to relationships as well as parenting. Would you agree with, uh, with this statement? Uh, yeah, um, I think that that's kind of the flip side of what I was just talking about, where there's there's on, on one extreme is a parent who, because of their own preoccupations and certainly through no fault of their own, is, is just not able to repair. And then on the other hand, there's a parent who's overly uh, preoccupied and also through their own anxiety and through no fault of their own has to meet the the, the baby at every moment and there can be no disruption and nothing can go wrong. And that also can get in the way of that child's emerging sense of competence uh, and self-efficacy. Yeah, the parent, the parent who meets every need of the child, were that possible? Or tries to meet them really um, as quickly as possible, uh, in a way is, I think is, is in a way conveying to the child a message that you are fragile, that there, there are danger, that it is dangerous to be disrupted, to have to be on your own. Um, and I also think that um, that parent um, is 
in this sense, conveying their own anxiety about the situation to the child. And the child is picking that up. So an example, I, I think we have this example in the book um, that um, looking at a, a mother, I, I was, this was a mother infant uh, with a 30 month old little girl in, a, in our laboratory. And this mother and infant danced like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. The, they were perfectly in tune with one another. This is a 30 month old little girl. She could complete the sentences for the mother. The mother could complete them for her. They moved and they were engaged in activity that um, really was remarkable. I probably in some sense, the most in tune pair I had ever seen. And when we did a, a variant of the still face for a 30 month old, this little girl immediately fell apart, but became distraught and we, we stopped the procedure right away. And I think the reason that that occurred was that this little girl knew exactly how she and her mother would relate to one another. They had a kind of perfect attunement. And when it broke, she did not know what to do because she had not had the typical experience of babies dancing, you know, 30 month olds dancing with their parents of every once in a while hearing no, every once in a while being told to do something else or the parent not understanding what a 30 month old is really looking for. Those are the resolutions that allow the child to learn how to cope. I think this little girl had so little of that experience that she did not have those resources, that sense of self that was independent of, of the parent. So kind of an inoculation principle that you are kind of instilling a, a sense of um, stress um, to kind of uh, make them stronger, but again, in, in a way that they can handle at, at that age. It's kind of interesting. I just read about uh, monkeys who um, take care of the firstborn and make sure that they, they, they don't fall off the trees. But then once they have other kids, they don't take care of them as much. And those ones become more re resilient because, mm -hmm. uh, again, they fall and they have to cope with that. And mm -hmm. I, I saw also an amazing documentary called Jane about Jane Goodall. And she talks about this one monkey who was so attached to his mother that when she dies, like, I guess, weeks after, he dies as well from a broken heart, from mm -hmm. the sense of loneliness, because he was so attached to, overattached to, to his mother. So in that sense, I completely agree with you. My concern is that it could be taken too far by crazy. So that, again, Goldilocks, I think, would would work best here of, of trying to find the balance. Uh, um, Claudia, what is your your view on this? Just to get your in, input as well. Yeah, I think um, the the balance. Um, yeah, I think I think that that it's. I find it helpful actually to to take this concept into the moment. Um, because if you sort of talk about it in, in very broad terms, it's hard to know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so, so in a moment of interaction uh, between a monkey and their monkey parent or a child and their, their parent, there's, there's a sense of how much uh, 
separation or, or how much stress that child can handle. Um, and there's also what's going on for the parent. And then as they kind of work through that moment, then it either leads to a place of further growth for the child or not, uh, depending on how well each are able to. And, and there are f factors in each. I think we're leaving out a sort of a whole layer of the conversation here, which is what are the qualities that the child brings to the relationship? Um, because children are different from each other from the moment they're born. Um, uh, so uh, one child uh, may be uh, very relaxed, laid back, easygoing, easy to read their cues. Another baby may be very intense and shift very rapidly from one state to the other, have incredibly uh, exquisite sensitivities to sensory experience. And so those things also affect the quality of, of this moment-to-moment uh, -moment interaction. Yeah, the specific needs of, of, uh, of, of children. And so uh, there are more, there's some who are more sensitive and uh, who, who, again, would deal with situation differently. And so in education, we try to do that as well, to adjust uh, the, to the children, to the students. And I think as parents, we need to do that as well and be attuned with that. Exactly. So there's not like one size fits all uh, in terms of, of theory. Uh, we do have to adjust to the individual needs. Now, one of the shows that I, I really like is Cesar Milan's uh, um, show, The uh, the Dog Whisperer, where he, he, he talk, he's a dog psychologist and you mentioned dogs. Uh, we don't have a dog yet, but what I found fascinating in that show is um, the anxieties of the dogs are mainly caused by the owners. So he doesn't deal with the dog specifically. He, he deals with the owners trying to overcome, trying to help them overcome their anxieties so they don't pass it on to their dogs. And I always think of that in terms of uh, children as well and parents. And so when a child is, is troubled, again, most of the times, not, not all the times, but most of the times, I think the source might be from the home or from the parents. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, okay, I, I know I just spoke, but I have to jump in here because yeah. I really am mindful of the risk of parent blaming in all of these conversations. Um, so it's a relationship and each person has a role to play. So when things go wrong, you know, you could say it's no more the parent's fault than it is the child's fault. Um, it's just that perhaps the parent, um, again, I also think it's very important to look at the relational context of the parent. So let's say they're they're in a relationship with a partner that's particularly stressed and that that's preoccupying them or you know even more extreme things such as domestic violence, you know. So so things like that can be happening um, to the caretaker. Um, and then you have in the child, you have these sort of variations that I was describing, but you can have a child who, eventually may end up with a, a, a label as being on the autism spectrum who's, you know, uh, neurologically much more vulnerable. Um, so I think blame is not helpful <laughs> to say that it's the parent's fault or it's from the home. I think it's something is happening in the relational context of all the players that is causing things to not be working well. And you really need to take time and space to understand as Ed often says, it's complicated. Is there a sibling? I'm working with a family now of twins where one is the identified patient, but you, you, know, you cannot possibly understand what is going on for that family without understanding the very unique and um, multi-layered twin uh, phenomenon.
Yeah, but but I'm not talking about blame. I mean, I'm, I'm, we need to find the source of the conflict. What is causing this? So if you have like uh, an issue with your partner and your relationship, you want to find out what is, why is this person behaving this way? What is the cause of it, of trying to fix it? And I think it's really important to pinpoint it. Now, the blame is something that is something else. I'm not uh, talking about that. I'm not blaming parents for for again bad parenting because mo most likely and uh, they have experienced it themselves in their own childhood and it's kind of like it continues there might be cultural factors there might be issues like poverty there might be issues like discrimination so this exists but it does exist and we can look at it without uh, making people feel guilty about it but really getting to the source of the conflict so Anxiety and trauma and stress, these are things that, that happens to everyone. And it's, it's the idea of, of mental health. Uh, it's, it's opening up now more. People are more willing to share things about it. People are more willing to talk about it. And that is a very good thing. I'm very happy to see that. And I think that would take away the stigma and also the, the feeling of I am weak, therefore I need to get uh, mental health uh, help. That's not true. I think we all need mental health, especially with something like that it has been happening over the past few years. We all need help. And it's important that that becomes normalized and we don't see it in, in terms of I'm, I'm weak or uh, blaming others, but it's a natural fact and let's deal with it so we can all improve uh, in our relationships and ourselves in our relationships with ourselves as well. One, one way, perhaps, to think about this, because it's, it's very easy to sort of get, go into a, a very deep sinkhole about this, in, in part because the, the phenomenon is so complicated. But one way I try to think about it, and it's, it's certainly not a complete way, is, is to think that between the parent and the child, or between two individuals who are in a relationship, is that they're, they're a phenomenon that um, support their being able to adapt to one another in a relationship. And they're a phenomenon that um, make it more difficult. So we've named some of them, someone who uh, is really poor or someone who has to work for, you know 24 hours a day or has three jobs as a parent is under a lot of stress. And those are external factors that for most parents demand that they use resources to deal with that in a disproportionate way instead of maintaining resources that they could have for dealing with their child. And on the child side, you can see similar things to that the child who's in a really noisy environment and not sleeping very well where we talk about children getting bullied at school or racism coming, being confronting a child. So the child also has to use resources. And those factors become obstacles when you're in a relationship with, with the other person. And the obstacles prevent you from hearing, seeing, and exploring what's possible with that other person. So there may be a relational problem. The, um, I remember a, a, a 
mother and infant, this is a, a four month old, five month old um, and the mother. And the mother felt like there was a real failure in their relationship. And one of the things about this child, this child was really amazing in terms of being able to keep herself calm, look around, very few things upset her. Um, she didn't cry a lot. She wasn't very demanding. Some parents would value that kind of child and love to have that kind of child. Except this parent expected and wanted uh, for reasons in her own history of having a damaged sibling. She wanted a child who was demanding and pushing and really strong and cried vigorously and in some ways was difficult for most parents. And she got this really wonderful, quote unquote, wonderful little girl. And it was not the baby that she had wanted. And it took exploring that issue to see what the mismatch was. Neither one of them were, certainly neither one of them were to blame and neither one of them was doing something, you know, that was really problematic. But the fact was, they, there was real discord in the relationship between the way they were as individuals. Um, and as the parent began to see that, then the parent could begin to take pleasure in the way her child was, and that her child brought something very special and unique to their relationship. Um, and that the mother was then able to really make the kinds of adjustments she needed to make to be less anxious, to not be so concerned, and to really take pleasure in the relationship. I think a lot of discord comes because of communication as well. And so um, I, I found it interesting the theory of embodied simulation uh, when it comes to language learning, so that you basically are experienced kind of like uh, Piaget's uh, schema, that experience of words and specific words, like when I talk about harmony or stress and so on, it's so uniquely tinged uh, and uh, colored that uh, we won't have the same conception of it. And this is just, just basic things. So our communication becomes very difficult because of that, because my experiences color the words and the language uh, that I use. And so that is an issue in relationships, especially mm -hmm. here if, if again, with, uh, with a spouse or, or a partner. Um, so how can we overcome these issues of communication problems that uh, could creep in, misunderstandings? And I think we, we had uh, a bit of discord here too, which is great. I, I applaud that. I, I don't see it as a bad thing at all. But it's also misconception because again, my intention was not to blame and it might have been my lack of communication skills there yes. or it might have been again that we have also preconceived notions of things when he says that he means that which is not what i said or didn't mean to say again more complicated uh, what can you say about communication here specifically well i i think you know we're we're showing it right here um, you know, I wrestle with this, this idea of blame through all my writing, because as soon as I start talking to parents about any role they might play in what is happening with their children, uh, I mean, they immediately feel blamed. And so I, I, I'm very sensitive to that phenomenon. But what you're, and I think that that probably comes from sort of the inherent 
guilt that that goes along with being a parent in, in a healthy kind of way. Um, so I, but I think this kind of thing where you take the time to say, well, that's not what I meant, mm-hmm. rather than shutting each other down, but really wrestling through it till we can get to a point where we make sense of, of what each other are saying, rather than have these very rigid reactions uh, that that shut us down. Um, and that's something we're suffering with in this world we live in now, where people just take things at face value and then they they shut down the communication. Well, and, and many people shut down and go on the defensive. One of the things that psychoanalysis has shown me, it's it's not about me. It's often about other people when they get angry, when they say these horrible things. I don't take it personally, like whether in social media or or even in person, because I think about what is coming out of this. And again, without blaming the other person, it's like maybe there is a lot of frustration in, in people. And I think I see the whole polarization currently in the political world, worldwide, actually. It is that people are frustrated, people are angry, and that's coming out. But in many ways, it's also their own personal frustrations that has a moment to, to come out. And that is a good thing if we use it in productive means of trying to deal with it. And again, coming together and having discussions without shutting down or, or, or sending people off, of really talking in an open and honest way with each other. I think that is lacking. And I think we need to do more of that, whether in our personal relationships or with others, again, even people we disagree with or who disagree with us, of sitting down and really, really talking in an open way. And it, it, it involves dealing, and I think you point at it, it involves a challenge in terms of being open. And it involves a challenge in a number of ways. It involves a challenge of hearing things from this other person um, that um, may really be uh, uh, problematic, that sound uh, punishing or threatening. Um, to, to you. And even if you attribute it to um, something in their own past, they're, they're really talking somehow about themselves rather than about you. Um, you know, the, the problem in that situation is when something begins with your name, like, Ed, you are this way. It's very hard to step back and say, oh, you're not talking about me. This is, you know, your kind of issue. But on both sides, it's not just being open and honest. It's being willing to tolerate both the the discord that's occurring between you in terms of the discussion. And it's also being able to tolerate your own internal discord and anxiety that you're experiencing. So psychoanalysis makes it they're really clear. Someone says something, and the issue isn't isn't any longer between you and them. It's between you and yourself. And you need to be able to not let that anxiety drive your relationship with the other person. But that is really challenging to do because it's very painful or it's very frightening. you know, when I work with therapists and I do uh, supervision, one of the issues we're always dealing with is, is the anxiety you're feeling now, anxiety that's coming from the person you're with, or is it your anxiety, or is it both? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and most of the time, in fact, it's both. Um, but the really problematic one is when it's just yours and you begin to act as if it's the other person or it's in the relationship. Uh, it, it is, it, it takes that capacity to control and regulate yourself, to be able to stay in the situation, to not get angry, to not withdraw, um, to not just take the word and make the word rigid. Um, you know, like I think one of the worst words that couples use is the word always. Yeah. Right? You are always like this. Now, no one really means always like every minute of the day you are like this, right? What it means is you're doing this now and you always do it, right? But quote unquote, it's really, you're doing this now and it really makes me angry now. You may do it other times as well, but right now, but always, and the person comes back and says, what do you mean always? I don't always do this. And right away, you, you've, you've lost the, the, the willingness to go along with each other and, and to be curious with each other. Hmm. Yeah, I like that, to be curious with each other, the opportunity to repair and fix. And uh, one thing that psychoanalysis has, has really taught me is the importance of boundaries, of having my own boundaries, that this is how, how far I'm willing to go in your direction. And then not to repair it, maybe if it's not possible, we want to be realistic, not all relationships will work and are good for us, but to, to realize that. And once you do, you can't repair it, that's okay as well. It's, it's important to, to, to really make that decision, but it's not based something that's just uh, from our upbringing or from our own anxiety, something that we consciously, a decision we consciously make. And I think that's important too, of when we talk about relationships of, uh, again, balance between the two and uh, being open to each other, being honest and also being realistic. And so that is something I think people are, are lacking a sense of realism in, in many ways of what is possible, not what we dream of, but what is really possible in a situation, a relationship and so on, and what is not. But, but an aspect of being your, your idea about boundaries, and I agree with you, and I think boundaries in terms of child rearing are really critical. I, I think they're critical for the child because they make the child safe. But as adults, when we have boundaries, it is, it's important to know that there's a boundary beyond which you're not going to go. But when you're in that situation of discord with someone, when you're in that disagreement, is to know that you have a boundary, but that you still can explore with the other person what they're thinking about and what their boundaries are and that you still can be curious because often what happens when someone pushes you to your boundary, what you do is you react angrily and you push them away and, and you're saying you, you no longer engage with them. What you're doing is just protecting your boundary. But if you can be calm about your boundary, I know what my boundaries are but let's keep talking about this. Let's figure it out. I think, you know, in many ways, what's happening 
politically now is that kind of quality really on both sides. Um, people are operating very much at their boundaries and are unable to create um, also what Winnicott talked about, that open space between them mm -hmm. yes. where the discussion can go on. So you compromise, can have, type of compromise too between the two, yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, and just to introduce another of my favorite words and ads, which is uncertainty, is when you're in that kind of a messy moment of discord, that to be able to realize that you don't really know where the other person is coming from. So actually, I prefer the term not knowing to uncertainty, because uncertainty feels like you know, we don't know when the next variant of COVID is coming. I mean, you know, not knowing in a relationship with someone what is behind, what 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 feeds their behavior, their language, their you know. So, so that curiosity and and not knowing, um, which I think is sort of how we get our way to empathy, is is I, I really want to take time to hear what you're saying instead of being certain that I know what you're saying, mm -hmm. which cuts the, the communication off. And words matter so much now, especially when, when you're a child and you hear your parents overhear them say something about you and that could stick with you for, for a mm -hmm. long time, depending again, your reaction to it. And in relationships too, like in the, the concept of always, but sometimes we say things we don't mean and we, we don't intend, but it can create uh, um, hurt and uh, lasting hurt. So I think that's again important to repair that as soon as you notice that and not just ignore it. I think again, opening up for that and having discussions, open discussions, talking about emotions and feelings, that needs to come to the forefront a bit more. Mm -hmm. I think well, one of the things, though, in terms of the importance of words and you know, I'm an academic, so I live, I live by writing words and doing words and whatever is, is to recognize, and you would have this from a psychoanalytic perspective, psychodynamic perspective, uh, but from the research, you know, from the science of development, we know that these early ways that children make meaning, the ways they use their uh, nervous system, the way they're cardiac system reacts, the way their cortisol system reacts, that those systems are still operating within us as adults. Yes. And the way they were structured early on is having an impact and an effect on how we are reacting in the moment. Um, it's not that they're memories as such, but if you've been raised so that your cardiac system reacts to, uh, or let's say underreacts to a lot of stress. Um, you, your system is, um, has a really high threshold to be brought into engagement. Well, that kind of person in an argument doesn't lose it quite as quickly not because the words make sense to them, not because they're using their words and they are using their words, but they're not becoming anxious so quickly. They're able to hear things that are difficult. Like you, you're saying, oh, when someone says something that, you know, is really annoying, that's picking on me or whatever, you know, you might go, okay, 
what's, you know, it's, it's not about me. And part of that, I think, is because of your internal physiology. It's not just that you say, oh, those are just words. They're not about me. My psychoanalytic training makes it clear that they're really talking about themselves. I think some of it has to do with this child part of us that's structured in a particular way. I completely agree with that, but I've overcome that. Three years ago, I would have reacted in, in the same defensive way, and I would. But it's that realization of like the, the unconscious that is coming out and I'm realizing things about myself. And that has helped me see mm -hmm. things not in a personal way and not to, to react quickly to it. And that is yeah. really through psychoanalysis. And one thing that has really helped me is actually suffering. So it's mm -hmm. by suffering, by stepping out of my comfort zone, by suffering, by, by facing uh, difficulties, which is, it's, it's very, very difficult. But mm -hmm. it is so rewarding if, if you open yourself up to it. And that was my experience with psychoanalysis. It was, it was hard. It, I was going through it myself and so on. But then it was so liberating and empowering as I stepped mm -hmm. out. And suddenly I realized, why did this bother me in the past when it's actually really nothing? And mm -hmm. so it's, it's that kind of shift in perspective I mm -hmm. think we, we all would benefit from. And you're mm -hmm. talking, yeah, absolutely. We are stuck in this, this emotional selves of ourselves when we were a child. But, and some but, really but I would imagine, yeah. I would imagine having, having in, in my own experience of psychoanalysis, that one of the things you're able to do is to be in two ways with yourself. One is you may still have some of that old anxiety. It may come up and hopefully you recognize it. And now you can say, oh, but in a sense, this is me or this is my past, but it's not in the moment. It's not what's going on now. So the loneliness you may feel, the anger you may feel, you still may have that feeling. Nonetheless, you have now another kind of framework and understanding to say, but don't act on that because that really isn't tied to the situation. And an example that may capture that for, for the people listening is when you go to, a, if I were to go to Vancouver and you were to tell me this neighborhood is really safe and I'm looking around and it's late at night and it's raining and I'm cold and whatever, and I'm walking past a dark alley and you've told me this, you know, Vancouver, it's Canada. It's really safe. Don't worry about it. When I look down that dark alley, in my gut, I feel afraid. And at the same time, I can say, you don't have to be afraid. Well, you know, this is the way we live our lives with those gut feelings that we hopefully are aware of and trying to understand what, what really is happening now. 
One of the things I love as well is philosophy and the question why is so important. And I've, I've taken that shift to, to psychology. Why am I feeling afraid? What is making me feel afraid? And so, so one of the things for me was with, with bosses. So uh, I grew up in Germany. Authority is really important. I always had a fear of it, respect for authority. And uh, um, kind of different when, when you grew up in, in North America, it was more relaxed in that sense. But then also, again, parents. And so I would project this idea of parents onto bosses and I'd be very afraid. But once that has taken away, once again, the difference between not knowing and knowing what Claudia was referring to, once it gets to the realm of knowing, then you see, no, it's no big deal. It's nothing to be really afraid of. This is my own fears from my past or my own upbringing or my own experiences that are bringing these uh, feelings out that are not really in, in agreement with what is happening, not, uh, again, realistically speaking. Well, I, I, wish, I wish it were quite as true as you said, because there are certainly times in my own experience for myself where I know what's, you know, both what is going on that's distorting what's happening and knowing what really is going on. And unfortunately, maybe hopefully infrequently, but there are times that I fall back into that part that's, that's the distorting part. But that's that, okay. Again, that's the drive for perfectionism where you, you expect too much and that we do fall back and we, we, we have to be okay with that. It's like, yes, but now I know, and now I know more. And then by begin practicing, the neural pathways will get stronger and we will find a way out of it. It becomes easier again, I guess, with the practice again. Yeah. Well, it, it does become easier, but I would, I would suggest you know, the next time you could, what we could do is you could, um, um, you could interview my wife. And okay. when she would say to me, are you sure you're really angry at me as opposed to something else going on? Um, and in my analysis, um, my analyst could have saved me probably $100,000 and a lot of time in analysis, when he gave me what he referred to as the hedgehog rule. And the hedgehog rule was the more extreme your reaction, the more angry you get, the more you're into screaming and yelling, the more you're into it, the greater the likelihood that what you're reacting to has nothing to do with what's going on now. Okay, I like that. Yeah, I like it too. I wish I had known it at the very beginning. Right? I wish I had known psychoanalysis when I was in my teens. It would have, it would have helped <laughs> me with my romantic life much more. And I was yes. afraid of things that didn't matter. And it was just in my head in many ways. I just want to finish here on talking briefly about technology and uh, the importance, the influence of technology as we have shifted to a different kind of world now, thanks to the pandemic. And the benefits and drawbacks, kind of briefly, I know we're, we're running out of time here, but kind of briefly, what effects does technology have on our relationships and with ourselves as well as with others? Maybe Claudia, we can get you started on this part. Yeah, well, this is another one of those uh, 
fraught subjects that is at risk of oversimplification, that mm -hmm. cell phones are bad and parents are always on their cell phones, so they shouldn't do that because it's bad for their kids. So some element of that is true, but parents use, uh, I mean, first of all, our new reality is that we have to use technology um, because of the pandemic. Um, and so pen, uh, technology has a lot of very positive uh, forces uh, in our lives. Um, and uh, in terms of managing a sense of isolation that, that parents may have in terms of being able to connect with feeling more themselves than just in their parent role, which can sometimes make you lose your sense of self. Um, so there are a lot of values and, and the flip side also for kids who, first of all, they need to use technology sometimes, particularly during that time when we were all virtual, um, but it becomes problematic when it's more of a yes and situation you, that when you when it replaces the messiness of face, moment to moment uh, actual interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and we can have mismatch and repair as we saw here uh, in the virtual world as well. Um, we've gotten used to that. Uh, it, it's much more rich when you're actually in the room with someone and you're having the, the body language and all of that that you work through. Um, but it, the risk of technology is when it is, uh, excludes uh, human uh, moment by moment interaction. Yeah, it changes the dynamics. And just about talking about boundaries again, one of my boundaries was technology. And so when we moved to um, online teaching, I was strongly against it and I teach languages. And I said, it's not possible. And I said, this is not going to work. But I gave it a try. And now I love it. And I wouldn't want to <laughs> do anything else because it's, I see the benefits of it. And it's again, our preconceived notion It's like, no, that's not going to work. I won't even give it a try. I think we all should step out of that comfort zone and, and try it out. And if it's not fine, that's okay. But I've seen the many benefits of it. Of course, it doesn't make up for in-person learning and in-person contact, but there's so many things you can do as well. So it's again, that, that balancing act as well. Yeah, um, Ed, what about, what's your view on technology and how do you see it in, in our relationships here? I, I very much agree with, with both of, of what you're saying. Um, and I think we're coming to um, appreciate the unique features of each one and probably the, the drawbacks of each one. And our experience, Claudia and I had this experience together, was two years ago in March, we had our first fellowship meeting the weekend before everything shut down. And that weekend, there was a party. Um, we had 35 fellows from all over the world together, being together, getting to know each other. And after that, everything shut down. Unfortunately, none of us had any kind of COVID. And so we didn't have any super spreader event. And the rest of the fellowship program um, was done virtually. But that one weekend of contact was a Thursday through a Sunday with these individuals, getting however we got to know some of them and with each other, made an enormous difference in terms of how we could relate to each other virtually um, and really facilitated that. And there are parts of it which we could not recapture virtually. And on the other hand, virtual um, 
also made some demands on us. And maybe this is your experience in class. It's my experience when I teach now that you have to try and be clearer than you might otherwise be. You have to um, also really attend to the images that you're looking at on the screen um, in a somewhat different way than when you do, when you're really together. And you become more aware of that. And that can be very, very helpful. And at the same time, you miss that sort of easy flow of what might be going on if you were together in the same room. So there, there are real benefits. And obviously for the past two years, the benefit of technology has lightened the burden of what we're all experiencing. And at the same time, we've lost something um, over these two years that the virtual really isn't, isn't able to make up. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ed Tronick and Dr. Claudia Gold. You are the dynamic duo. I love the, you have the theory as well as the practice and you, you got together to write the book. The book again is The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience and Trust. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day and best of luck to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.